Hi, I'm Atmar Safnauer, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone. Tom Clarkson here. Now, the F1 season is over. The prizes have been handed out, but we're back with another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is someone who's worked in F1 for 20 years, but he isn't a household name, at least not yet. Following the upheaval at Force India in the summer, when Sergio Perez triggered a change of ownership by putting the team into administration, this particular gentleman emerged as team principal and the face of the Silverstone-based team. I'm talking, of course, about Otmar Safnauer. Otmar has a fascinating backstory, having amassed a huge amount of F1 experience working for British American Racing and then Honda prior to joining Force India 10 years ago. He lived through Adrian Reynard's claims that BAR would win their first race. Do you remember that? He worked with world champion Jacques Villeneuve and a host of other top drivers, and he even joined Jaguar Racing, albeit only on paper. Yet his most stressful season of all was the one just gone with Force India. So prepare for some never-heard-before insights, and I hope you enjoy what is an amusing and illuminating chat. Well, Otmar, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's fantastic to be here at the, the Force India HQ at Silverstone. Thanks for coming, Tom. Been here before, but that was back in the Jordan days. It's been a long time. It hasn't changed much. It hasn't changed much, actually, I think. Is this, are we sitting in what was Eddie Jordan's office? No, or? I think, I, I was in here once and I think it was John Putt. I don't know, Eddie's may have been next door. But I was definitely in this office talking to John Putt in the day. Back in the day. Well, it's 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 a small office, but a very functional office. And that kind of sums up everything about Force India, doesn't it? But looking at this year as a whole, Otmar, um, with everything that's happened, the team going into administration and then being saved, would you say this has been the most stressful year in the sport for you? For me personally, probably the most stressful year um, and the stress mainly came from the uncertainty of uh, what was going to happen with the team because of its uh, financial status. Uh, and then once the administration button was pressed by uh, Sergio, um, the uncertainty grew, <laughs> but fortunately only for a few weeks. And then we came out the other side with uh, having successfully completed the administration process and a new shareholding and, and uh, a new injection of funding. How parlous were the team's finances coming into this year? How nervous were you about the whole situation back in March, let's say? Yeah, um, signif significantly parlous. <laughs> um, we didn't start the season... Uh, with a car that we wanted to because we didn't have the funding to produce the parts. Uh, because of it, our performances, especially at the beginning, were not where we should have been. We didn't score very many points. Um, and the finances didn't look like they were getting any better. Uh, we finally had the opportunity to bring a significant upgrade to the car. Um, and... That happened in uh, Singapore after we went through the administration process and uh, therefore we finally had a car that was competitive in the midfield and we did our best to score as many points as we could. But um, yeah, the finances really hurt us this year. 
I mean, what kind of a car were you using for those opening 12 races? Am I right that you were using a front wing from the Singapore Grand Prix at the start of this year? Singapore 2017. Yeah, so at the, at the start of the year, I can't remember if it was a Singapore uh, front wing. Could very well have been. Um, but I think we produced a car for winter testing, a launch car uh, that we wanted to upgrade with the first race car the melbourne car and we couldn't do that for quite some time so we started the season with the uh, car that we produced for winter testing which is never your best car um and we couldn't change it until well in into the season um and the uh performances showed so fast forward to is it july the 27th sergio pulls the trigger and what happens then? What was your role, Otmar, in, in the negotiations that happened then? Yeah, so once Sergio pulled the trigger, uh, the first thing that had to happen was, uh, you, you, well, I, I don't know the uh, procedures because it's not an everyday thing, but from memory, you had to go in front of a judge and Sergio's side uh, was to explain to the judge why we needed the administration to happen and the shareholder side was to try to explain to the judge why administration shouldn't happen and the team could continue um, on its merry way just as it had been for the last 10 years and a judge had to decide and he took him a couple of days to decide that administration was the right process. Thereafter uh, the administrator came in uh, took over the running of the company. So my day-to-day -day job was really just to support the administrator. Um, but more importantly, uh, the role that I played was to keep the workforce together because you don't buy this place for its building or its land or its facilities. Um, as a matter of fact, the most important facility of a Formula One team is usually its wind tunnel, and we use Toyotas. Um, but the reason you buy this place is for the people and knowing that we're going through the administration process with the administrator doing the negotiations or the making the decision as to which bidder to sell the team to, I knew that those bidders were bidding based on the people that worked here and the team. So it was my job to keep that team together because if we couldn't keep the team together, what are you really selling? Um, Did you lose anyone during that no, uncertainty? We lost nobody. Not a single soul. Not a single soul, which was, uh, it was a big deal and very difficult to do because usually the best people that are known to the other teams um, will have had offers and they did have offers from the likes of McLaren and Williams and Renault and, and some others. Um, and it was difficult to keep everyone together when the future was uncertain whereas taking a job at one of the other teams your your future was pretty certain um but we managed to do it everybody stayed together and uh in the end um the consortium led by lawrence stroll who were the successful bidders uh got the team that they were looking to buy i read that there were 20 interested parties what was it about Lawrence's bid, Lawrence's consortium that got the nod? Well, from what I understand, and I, I don't have all the details because that was done by the administrator, um, there were 
although 20 interested parties, there's probably four or five of them that had the wherewithal, including Lawrence's consortium. But um, I, I think the reason Lawrence was successful was because he he put in two bids uh, simultaneously. One was to buy the assets, and, and the other was to buy the shares from uh, from the shareholders. And I think some of the others assumed that uh, buying the shares from the shareholders was a non-starter, mainly because the shares were either pledged to somebody else or had a freezing order on them by uh, a consortium of banks or the Indian government. And um, I don't know if it was by luck or by judgment, but Lawrence decided to uh, put two bids in, one to buy the assets and two to buy the shares. And I think the fact that it was two bids was what uh, what got him over the line. So here we are now. We're in a team owned by Lawrence. How hands-on is he? How often does he come here to the factory at Silverstone? He comes about, um, I would say, five times a month. So at least once a week, we have a, a management meeting where um, he attends and uh, we make you know significant strategic decisions in, in those meetings. We also use that time to communicate what's happened in the last week. We discuss the progress of next year's car, uh, spend a lot of time on on performance and what we're doing to improve uh, a little bit of time on HR and where we're going with hiring people, some time on the factory, the facilities, and what we need to go quicker. And, and we do that uh, uh, once a week. And then, you know, he may, he may come one other time with uh, some other purpose in mind. But I would say on average five times a month. And by comparison, the previous owner, Vijay Malia, how often did he get here? So he used to come uh, towards the end about the same amount of time. He would attend those management meetings. But at the beginning, uh, when he had a, a passport where he could travel the world, uh, he would maybe spend four or five days a year here. Um, you so know, a, a, a year. A year. So... I would say three days around or maybe four days around the uh, British Grand Prix. Um, and we would have uh, a family day out on the lawn and uh, a partner day. And and then a couple days around Christmas. And then maybe a smattering of other days. So maybe five days is uh, uh, is not enough, but definitely less than 10. You know, it was a handful of days a year that he spent here. And I suppose there's good and bad with, with both of those things. And that Lawrence obviously is much more hands-on. Do you find that, do you and the team find that motivating and exciting? Or actually, did you quite like the hands-off approach that VJ had? Well, I think there's good and bad to both. Um, the hands-off approach is, uh, you know, when we had asked VJ his, his opinion or guidance, we would. Uh, but the rest of the time, we ran the team as we saw fit to uh, to maximize performance you know that's what we focused on all the time all our efforts and that worked well um, with with Lawrence especially now coming four or five times a month there are a lot of things that need to be changed here there's a lot of pent-up demand for capital expenditure here for example and it's nice to get guidance from a shareholder when you're spending the shareholders money 
uh, on capital equipment, on new buildings, on land, on all sorts of things. I need to things. stop you there. So, so is there, there's plans for a new factory and more land and more people and all of the above? Yeah, so the, those big strategic decisions you have to do with the shareholders and, and the, the board members um, and all those types of things we're, we're discussing now. So uh, a bigger factory, but to build a bigger factory, you've got to buy the land first and um, – also to uh, uh, within the factory to detail what type of equipment you want, how much of it, you know, what's important, what isn't important. All of this, while we mustn't take our eye off the ball, that is building, designing, and producing and, and developing a competitive racing car. And I've seen it so many times where teams have decided to either build a new wind tunnel or a new factory or new facilities and uh, the performance of the car suffered because you can't, the same people that design and, and specify the factory are the same ones that design and specify the racing car. And if you're doing one, you can't be doing the other. So we've got to be very careful that uh, if we do embark and we will embark on improving our facilities and infrastructure, that the car doesn't suffer. And, um, we, oh, my, this is so funny. This is so funny because on my way here today, I stopped at the services on the way and I bumped into a guy who used to work at BAR. And I said, Oh, I'm on my way to see Otmar. Blah, blah, blah. And he said, um, Now they've got all this money. Don't let them turn into the early years of BAR. That's exactly what he said. I'm not going to mention his name because that's, that's not important for this. But it's interesting, isn't it? How that was his perception that you've got an injection of cash. Don't do what BAR did in the early years. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's right. He's right. We, we've got to be very careful that uh, we continue to um, maintain that efficient nature that we have. Uh, we, we can't lose that. And if you do have a little bit more financial resource, but you stay efficient, um, then your output should be even better. The risk is you've got more significantly more financial resource, you lose the efficiency, and then your output is is no better, but you've spent a lot of money or even worse, your output can be worse. Uh, and you've spent a bunch of money. So we've got to consciously be aware that that can happen and make sure it doesn't happen to us. And did um, the takeover by Lawrence Stroll happen early enough in 2018 to have a positive effect on the 2019 car? I think so. I, I think so. Uh, earlier would have been better. Um, however, there are there are things that we, we learned uh, recently that will help the 2019 car. However, having said that, predominantly the 2019 car was was uh, uh, designed or the the backbone of it was designed by the time the consortium took over you know the chassis was uh, being manufactured already um, I think 2020 will see a bigger change than from 18 to 19. Now talking of changes um, what have we we've had one name change already on the on the entry list you're down as racing point but i'm hearing stories of another name change before we get to melbourne any <laughs> any truth to that well we racing point was a uh, uh, an off-the-shelf company that was used to buy the assets of force india so it could very well be that um, we change again 
uh, will only change again if we uh, if we find a, a better name to change to. So it could very well be that we stay as Racing Point, but uh, that still needs Formula One Commission approval, which should happen in mid-January. So there's still an opportunity to go to the Formula One Commission with uh, with a different name. Uh, but like I say, in, unless there's something better, um, then it could very well be Racing Point. I, I hope we uh, we do find something better. But there will be no reference to India in the name. Can we? Yeah. So for, Force India, uh, for obvious reasons, won't be uh, referenced anymore. It was the old entity, and uh, it had uh, a strong link to the old uh, ownership as well. So uh, I think it's a natural change. Uh, even the uh, previous shareholders, who were both Indian, wanted to change the name from Force India. So I think that's there's a logical reason to do that we just have to from now until mid-january uh pinpoint exactly what the name's going to be well if your name was easier to spell safnau grand prix would work wouldn't it yeah otmar is not that hard <laughs> yeah exactly maybe do otmar <laughs> now because of course one of the, the the good things i suppose about the, the takeover is that you you're now team principal how has that changed your day-to-day job so from day-to-day not not very much um Team principals, I guess, have uh, some extra functions that uh, I didn't have as chief operating officer. Um, so it's it's changed from from that regard. FOM, whenever they have meetings, the FIA, they invite the team principals. They invite me now automatically instead of inviting VJ and then VJ saying, "Oh, this meeting's in Paris. Can you go?" Um, if it's in England, I'll, I'll go and you come with me or, uh, you know, I'll go and I'll take Bob. Um, so that bit of it's different, but from day to day running the organization here and and the factory, it hasn't, it hasn't changed that much. Okay. Now I made a reference to your name and I think you have one of the most interesting backstories of anyone in a significant role in Formula One. Um, just tell us about it. First of all, Safnau is, Romanian, am I right? No, nope. Safnauer is German. The Z in the uh, after the S is Hungarian, and that Z was introduced when my great grandfather left what at the time was Austria-Hungary, I believe. The borders hadn't changed yet to become Romania. It was in the early 1900s. I think they left in 1907 to go to New York. I think they landed on Ellis Island. Um, they spent some time in Pennsylvania in Harrisburg where my grandfather was born in 1910. And then in 1914, they moved from uh, New York back to Europe. So my grandfather was, no, not 1914. I'm sorry. In 1924, he was born in 1910. They moved in 1924. He was 14 years old uh, when they moved back. And uh, why, why did they move back? So the, the land of opportunity and everything didn't. Well, work. I think from what my dad tells me, the reason they moved there was my great grandfather was a blacksmith, and he ended up in New York working as a as a blacksmith. And they they went to earn some money, save some money, and then go back. And with the money, uh, they were farmers. Well, I mean, he was a blacksmith as well, but lived in a farming community. They wanted to buy land and farming equipment. Uh, which I think is what they did until uh, after the Second World War when the communists came and took all the land away and the farming equipment. 
But you spent the first seven years of your life. Yeah, eight years in communist Romania. Wow. Yeah, and then we... So can it, you speak Romanian? I can. My mother's Romanian. My dad's of German descent. But, um, he was born in, in Romania. My grandfather can, was born in Can you say in Romania, to all our listeners, um, can you wish them happy holidays and um, hope you have a happy and successful 2019 in Romanian? Can you do that? Or am I asking something no, that's no, too no. difficult? No, no, no. fericite. Yeah, that's uh, that's happy holidays. But so in in up, up until you were eight, that was the the, the yeah, first it, first language of the family. Fir, first language uh, that in German, but um, I I still occasionally speak Romanian with the uh, uh, with the wait staff at the pub in Woodstock. There's a couple of them there, <laughs> but not not often enough to. Uh, but uh, but I understand and 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 can speak to a rudimentary level. What yeah. was life like? As a as a young kid behind the Iron Curtain, well, for me it was uh, not much different from zero to eight because I didn't understand philosophically the differences. We lived in a relatively small village. Um, you know, my my mother was a seamstress. My dad worked at a uh, a factory as a toolmaker. I mean, we we had a car. We had. I mean, not, not all the conveniences we had when we moved to the States, but, you know, I, I went to school, played football in the afternoon and had a dog and enjoyed life. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult for us, but I would imagine as I grew older, I would have understood the differences. And I remember my dad getting his passport uh, and, and saying to me, you know, where, where should we go? Uh, and our choice was anywhere. We could have gone to Germany because we were German speakers. And I remember really, really liking the American cars of the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, this was in 1971. And I said, we we got to go to the United States. It's the best country, and I like their cars. So I think that had a, my dad says anyway, it had an influence on when we left Romania where where we ended up and we ended up in Detroit, Michigan, mainly because he was a tool maker and he had some skills where he could get a job. So being in Detroit, did he, did he work for the Ford Motor Company? It seems to be it's what most people who have handled. Yeah, either General Motors, Chrysler. <laughs> At that time, American Motors was, uh, was still going. Uh, no, he worked for a uh, supplier to the auto industry, but my mother worked for Ford Motor Company. Okay. That had to happen. But you Am I right that you, when you raced uh, Formula Ford 2000, you had the Romanian flag? I didn't have the Romanian flag. What I did have was my number was 72, which was the year that we immigrated to the United States and left Romania. What a fascinating backstory. I mean, you have to ask next, I suppose. So where did this passion racing come from well they, there was and i don't know why but the um the local school in my local village in romania bought two go-karts and i don't know how or why or what for and i remember and it was oval racing in the garden i remember watching the kids and i was probably five years old at the time um and the kids racing may have been nine, 10, 11. And I just, I was fascinated by that go-kart and I used to sit in it and, uh, had an opportunity to, 
uh, drive it once, and I just absolutely loved it. And from that day on, and the fact that uh, my neighbor's father was a drag racer when we lived in Detroit, uh, he raced pro stock, and occasionally the cars would come to his house with the mechanics and the big trailer and the whole thing, and I was just fascinated by that. Uh, always enjoyed racing from a young age, and then we really couldn't afford it. The The minute that I, I got a real job after university, I thought I'm going to spend all my money going racing, which I did. So, so the attraction initially was driving? Yes, yep, 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 okay. yep from a young age. Yeah, and so, I, I thought I was going to be world champion. It. it um, why weren't you? I started way too old, way too slow. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's a great story. Didn't you have? Um, you were racing. It was at nine. We're talking mid nineties. That's when you were racing. Yeah, early early nineties. Yeah, early to mid nineties. And then it all came to an end when you had. Did you have a monster monster crash at Indianapolis? No, the the crash oh. at in Indianapolis wasn't wasn't that big, but it was costly. And it was the night before the 500. Uh, I didn't. I didn't make the uh, the feature race because I crashed. And uh, what happened? Can you remember? Yeah. No. I. I. I went. Um, I went wide. Got up into the marbles, and I. I just understeered into the wall, and understeering into the wall caused quite a bit of damage. It. It didn't hurt. <laughs> I wasn't injured. Uh, but I damaged the car enough to where I, I had to spend a lot of money to fix it. And it was a, it was the first time that I didn't drive my own car, but I rented a car, uh, which wasn't, which wasn't great, but I was much more competitive in the, in the Van Diemen than I was in, in my old Reynard. Um, and, but un unfortunately, um, it all came to an end when I hit the wall. Well, isn't that's ironic that the, the Reynard was no good because actually if we fast forward, um, it was actually meeting Adrian Reynard that got you into Formula One, am I right? That's right. Yeah, we we did a project together. At, did you tell him how rubbish his Formula Ford was? <laughs> it was. It wasn't rubbish. It was just outdated. You know, it was it was a '91 Reynard, designed in '89, built in '91, and I was racing it in '94. So it was very very difficult for me to compete with. You know, Van Diemen every year would bring out a new car with more performance, and that was the car to have at the time. And who was the the, the driver who was winning everything at the time? Oh, there was it. Mimo Gidley. Mimo Gidley. I I've raced against him. Yeah, I've interviewed yeah. Mimo. Yeah, Mimo Gidley and uh, another fellow, Chris Simmons. Right. And I think he ended up as a race engineer in IndyCar somewhere. Right. But not a driver. So Chris Simmons at the beginning. Mimo Gidley was another winner. Uh, before I got there, there was uh, Greg Moore. Of course. I remember? Yeah, IndyCar driver who yeah. sadly lost his life. Didn't yeah, he? so he, he drove a couple years before I got there. Yeah. I remember Greg helping me at Loudon, New Hampshire with the car set up. It was one of the, it was the first time I was on a one mile oval um, in a Formula 2000 car. That was exciting. That oh, was boy. very exciting. That yeah. was in 1993. And I think Nigel Mansell won the IndyCar race. We were supporting, we were supporting IndyCar at the time, and Nigel was there, racing alongside Mario Andretti. That's the, right. In the Newman, Newman Haas. Haas, and I was there, racing, in my team Otmar Racing Formula 2000. Was it Otmar Racing? It was. Oh, okay. <laughs> it takes us back to the name of the new team. Um, but look, so Adrian Reynard, you were working for Ford, and there was a 
a, a road car project that actually never saw the light of never day. Never saw the light of day. Two cars were built. It was called the Indigo, and uh, that was my my idea. Adrian built it. What was the idea? The idea was to build a indie car for the road. Um, Single-seater for the road? Not single-seater, side-by-side, okay. but a carbon fiber monocoque, which was the first, I think, in the early 90s. You know, now McLarens are carbon fiber and the Ford GT's carbon fiber. and But, yeah, so we built a carbon fiber monocoque side-by-side, um, we had a V12, six liter V12, uh, stressed powertrain with, uh, I think a Hewland sequential shift gearbox. Um, we had wishbone suspension front and rear push rods, wishbones with push rod suspension. And, um, and Raynaud was helping with the build or the design? Or no, the... uh, a, a little bit, a little bit of both, but mainly the build. So the aesthetics was, were designed by Ford Motor Company. And Reynard was helping with uh, the manufacturing plan because we were going to build a hundred of these out of carbon fiber. Uh, and Reynard was adept at, uh, you know, building indie cars, um, laying them up by, you know, by hand, uh, making carbon fiber monocoques. And Ford wasn't really experienced at that. So, you know, why didn't they see the light of day? It would be fantastic. It was a V12, 150 million dollar program to build, I can't remember how many years it was for, but we were building 2,500 a year, I think for five years, selling them for just over $100,000 a car. And it was very close to getting approval, but I believe the committee that approved that, that was led by, I can't remember the fellow's name, Trotman, Alex Trotman. Um, from what I understand, when it went up for approval, at the same time, there's a $150 million decision to fix the powertrain of the Taurus Sable, which was a bread-and-butter car at the time, and uh, they decided to spend the money on fixing the Taurus Sable powertrain instead of on a sports car. And had the Taurus Sable not had the powertrain issues, maybe this would have seen the light of day. Yeah. God, how frustrating, but good, because it pushed Reynard towards Formula One and the whole British-American racing project with Craig Pollock. Um, yeah, and British-American tobacco. And British-American tobacco. Started. And then you got a phone call, or how, how did how Yeah, did so that... I stayed in contact with Adrian. We it, it took us a year to build two cars, and Adrian was doing more uh, work with Ford Motor Company at the time. Um, and was also and also had Ford powertrain in his in his Indy cars. So he was often in Dearborn, and whenever he was in Dearborn, he called me, and we'd sometimes have lunch and just discuss things. And when it looked like the Formula One team was going to come to fruition, he called and said, "Are you interested? I need to hire a bunch of people, and would you be interested in coming over and working as the operations director?" He said, "I like the fact that you've got." big company experience, uh, formal education, but you've also raced. So he said those three things for me is what you need to uh, to work in a modern Formula One team. Was it a no-brainer for you, or did you have to think about no, it? No, I had to think about it. It was a big deal for me to leave uh, the Detroit area, move to England, uh, leave everything behind, but probably even a bigger deal to quit Ford Motor Company where I thought 
my career was started and was going to end with retirement at some level. And I wanted to do the best I could in uh, whatever career I chose. And at that point, I was 12 years into working at Ford. Uh, so it, was, it wasn't it was an easy decision. But once I decided to leave, I thought, well, I'll do the best I can now in Formula One once I've decided to go racing. But I've always enjoyed racing. It was a natural fit. Um, and I thought I had good experience that I could bring to Formula One. Not everything uh, overlaid very easily. There's some things in a big company that don't work well in, in smaller teams. And we just had to understand what did work well, what didn't work well, and apply those things that I learned in the past that would be useful. And the other things, just forget about. What was the role at BAR? So I was operations director. Right, based in Brackley, just down the road. Just from, down the road. From yeah. where we are now. So when Adrian Reynard starts telling the media that he's going to win his first Grand Prix. Yeah, I was there for that. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think at that moment? Uh, I, I thought it was a big ask. I thought it was a big ask. He had won in all the other formulas uh, first time out, which which is amazing that he was able to do that. But it, there's just a, a bigger step between the other formulas and Formula One and everyone in F1. It's so competitive. Everyone knows what they're doing. Uh, difficult to win. Why didn't it work? Why did BAR fail? It had all the money. It had an amazing factory, of course, which is now the Mercedes factory, which is dominating Formula One. But why did that package not work? The first year, we we didn't score any points, zero. I think we finished seventh a few times. And back then, unless you were in the top six, you scored nothing. Um, the first year's car was pretty good, actually, from a performance uh, standpoint. We qualified quite high um, at many races. The reliability we just didn't have. Um, and that was partly due to the fact that the Super Tech or Renault or Mechachrome or whatever it was called back then, I think we bought it from Flavio Briatore, uh, it set up some, uh, uh, some frequencies that we weren't anticipating. And that was, that was due to the engine vibration set up some frequencies within the car that just destroyed things. And we struggled to finish races. And we spent the entire year just getting reliability into the car. And that lasted for a year. I think in year two, uh, we had a Honda that had totally different frequencies in the car. And our first race of the second year, I think we finished fourth and sixth in Australia. So when you look back at it, you look and you think, oh, zero points the first year. Mm, I think our performance was much better than that. I remember. How did you compare to Williams, for example, who had the same engine that year? Yeah. Uh, and I think, I don't know if Renault had the same engine. Yeah. They, they knew what, I mean, they probably knew uh, how to design around the engine such that their car would last. So they had reliability and, and we didn't. It was it was a performant car. I remember Jack running, I think, in Monza. It was either Imola or Monza. I can't remember because we used to do both at that stage. It uh, could have been Imola. Until the car failed, was running ahead of Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari. So the performance was there. It's just, like I say, we could never finish. I remember observing from the outside and thinking it was an incredibly political team. A lot of politicking going on. A lot of sort of 
I don't know, camps within a camp. Is that is that a fair assessment? Maybe at the shareholder level, um, there there was at the beginning, and usually when you throw, you know, three hundred people together within a year, those types of things happen. You know, well, I was hired because of so and so, and I was hired because of somebody else, and I try to stay out of that uh, out of that kind of stuff and uh, let that politicking happen at a level above me so it was at the shareholder level um but yeah it, it did happen it did happen i try to steer clear of it okay well look uh the lure of the ford motor company was obviously there at some level burning a little hole in your head because bobby rahal came knocking didn't he yes it was tell us that now this is a funny story because i think a lot of people listening to this will go hang on a minute i've looked at otmar's cv he never worked for jaguar yeah, neg- neg- <laughs> negative, negative two days. So Ray Hall um, took over Jaguar Racing. Uh, he had a good relationship with the people at Ford Motor Company at the time. I think it was Neil Ressler who uh, hired him. And one of the conditions was that Bobby could simultaneously run his IndyCar team uh, as well as the Formula One team. And to do that, he had to be on this side of the Atlantic as well as back in the States quite often. So he needed somebody that was here all the time. So he asked me if I wanted to be the chief operating officer um, such that I could be on the ground in England running the Formula One team the entire time while he did both. So I thought, I'll take up the challenge. It's a step up from what I was doing at British American Racing, but not a huge step. I was operations director, and I took the job as chief operating officer working for Bobby. And unfortunately, in the gardening leave that I had, um, somebody else took over at Ford. I think it was Wrightsley. And he decided to... Well, Jack Nasser? No, maybe that no, was... He was the predecessor, wasn't Jack he? Jack so, Nasser yeah. was CEO of the company. And I think Wrightsley took over the large and luxury car group, which included Jag as part of the luxury car group. Uh, and underneath Jag was Jaguar Racing. And he decided to hire um, Nicky Lauda. And Nicky Lauda thought... He didn't need Bobby Rahal, and he got rid of Bobby Rahal um, two days before I was to start, and they called me and said, well, we don't need you to come either. Frustrating times. Yeah. Mind you, your garden must have looked pretty good. Yeah, so I gardening. Played leave, a lot of golf. Played a lot of golf, went to the gym. Um, yeah, it, it enjoyed it. It was in 2011. No, sorry, 2001, not 2011. Yeah. Yeah, that was in 2001. Um, and then you, in a sort of mad coincidence, you almost end up back at British yeah. American Racing, but but with... With Honda. Yeah. And the reason for that was that Honda were looking to perhaps purchase part of the team, and they wanted uh, somebody who had worked there to uh, assist them in uh, in their endeavors, one, with the team, and then two, maybe buying into the team. So they... Mr. Tanaka thought that I had very good insight as to what the team was like, and he was right. So he he hired me, and I stayed seven and a half years. 
How different was the whole Japanese ethos to anything you'd experienced before? Much different, especially from a racing perspective. So at Honda, they, uh, they're very focused on maximizing performance less so at uh, you know e even at the margins they would spend the money for a little bit of performance but if the expense was high to eke out that uh, bit of performance they would still do it they were so focused on uh, on winning uh, and doing the best they can which i really enjoyed and i learned a lot from them but the motor wasn't much good was it wasn't great until 2004 i want to say well, that's the team finished second in the construction. Exactly, and I think the motor was the best on the grid then. Okay. 968 horsepower, 88 kilograms, um, reliable, and uh, that was after Takio Kiuchi took over, who worked with McLaren and worked with Senna and, and Prost as their engine engineers, or he was their engine engineer. And uh, he, he had a huge focus on being competitive, and uh, he did a good job. How shocked were you when they withdrew from Formula One? Not that shocked at the time, because uh, that was uh, after the credit crisis and uh, nobody was selling cars. So it wasn't just Honda. I think uh, General Motors had to be rescued by the government, and there are a lot of companies struggling, uh, the American car companies for sure. Uh, so I wasn't that shocked that, uh, you know, Formula One not being at their core, they sell cars and motorcycles, I wasn't that shocked. Except they must have seen the numbers on that 2009 car that ended up being a brawn, and they must have known that they yeah, had a they competitive did, they, beast there. They didn't want to leave. Uh, I think the economic circumstances forced them into leaving. It was a very late decision. They They hung on. But it just car sales just kept going down and down and down, and you couldn't predict that they were ever going to come back out of it. How much do you think it hurt them as a company? Not, I mean, just just sort of. Uh, I don't know if it hurt or just in it, two two nine when you know yeah. that brawn as it became was so fast, wasn't it? Just, well, that yeah, either it us. hurt or you look back and you say, you know what, we had a, a big part of making that car go that quickly. So, just to fast forward, then you end up. 2009 coming here to force india how did that opportunity come about so in in 2009 i i taught i i spent some time doing the f1 timing app through soft power um and then thereafter started looking for employment in formula one again uh i spoke with mclaren uh who were interested in uh and perhaps uh, hiring me. And through those conversations, I talked to Martin Whitmarsh quite a bit. And McLaren had just signed a, a consultancy agreement with Force India. And part of that consultancy agreement was supplying gearboxes and rear impact structures and a bit of uh, technological know-how. But it also included uh, uh, supplying um, a chief operating officer. And that chief operating officer was Simon Roberts. He was seconded for a year. And at the end of the year, he had a choice of either going back to McLaren or staying here. And I had the discussions with Martin. Well, if, if Simon doesn't come back, perhaps there's a 
spot for me at McLaren, or if he does come back, and Martin says, well, if he if he comes back, then we will be happy to re recommend you to VJ as a suitable replacement. And Simon chose to go back to McLaren. It opened up a spot here. I had a discussion with VJ, and uh, he offered me the job. And the rest, as they say, is history. How has the team changed in those 10 years? So in, The offices haven't, I can tell you that. No, the offices <laughs> haven't. When, when I first joined in 2009, uh, we had 280 employees. We're at 410 or 415 now, so we've hired more people. Um, we did a, a lot of things differently. We, we're now using TMG wind tunnel instead of our own. We have our own CFD capability. When I first came, we used to hire... Tata CFD capability in India didn't work very well. Um, always had connection problems, all sorts of problems. And anyway, CFD and, and the wind tunnel are two major tools in, in producing quick racing cars. So we changed all that. We've uh, we added shifts to our small manufacturing capability. But uh, we what, what percentage of the car? is manufactured in-house? It all depends on how you measure that. But uh, compared to other teams, not a great big percentage. But what we try to do is manufacture all the critical parts in-house. So since I came here, we've now brought in the chassis, for example, so which is a big part. So the tub itself, where we used to never manufacture that in-house, now we do. All the suspension is manufactured in-house. The wings are manufactured in-house. Metal manufacturing, we have a relationship with a couple of suppliers, but we we do some things in-house our, ourselves. Not much. Our machine shop isn't that big. But to put a percentage on it is, is difficult because I don't know if it's a percentage of parts or of weight or of carbon or of cost. Or, but what we try to do is all critical components, and there are components that are critical to safety or to performance we try to keep in-house. Okay. Well, let's talk drivers. Best driver you have worked with? Mm, that's uh, I'm talking not just at Force India. I'm talking British American racing. Yeah, that's so. That was Jacques Villeneuve yeah. at British American Racing. He was probably probably the best guy there. Rubens Barrichello was there too. He had he had a, a, a great feeling for the car. And then here, I mean, there have been some really fast guys. Uh, Pick one. Pick one. Adrian Sutil was incredibly fast, but often didn't, couldn't really pinpoint why. Um, I remember, was it the Italian Grand Prix 2009? He finished fourth, I think. Started on the front row. Anyway, blisteringly quick. And I noticed actually here in the office, you've got, is that one of his I think rear wing end plates in your yes, office? Yes, that is, yeah. yeah, because he brought median. And then, you know, Sergio's, is, he's a, He's a crafty little driver, Sergio. Does a really good job. It's uh, it's no wonder he's had the amount of podium finishes he's had. Um, very tenacious. Um, struggled in qualifying a little bit at the beginning, but we've helped him through that. You know, Hulkenberg's won everything except for in Formula One. So we've had some we've had some great drivers. Yeah. I think Esteban is a champion of the future as well i want you to pick one or you know i, able to do I that. can't i can't do that they're so closely matched and they all have their strength and weaknesses so it it's really difficult and paul darista was good in his first year go on then who was rubbish 
<laughs> it seems yeah, to me you're not yeah, going to tell me. Can't, <laughs> can't say that. <laughs> Let's talk. Um, you've just come back. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, it was the Abu Dhabi test, wasn't it? And so all the teams were focused on 2019. We saw a lot of drivers, you know, Leclerc had a run out in the Ferrari and Kubica was in the Williams. And of course, Lance Stroll had his first run here. Um, what impression did he make on you guys? Well, he Lance absolutely loved his time in the car said the car could do the things that he wants a car to do which is good and we're duly impressed with with lance he uh we're already impressed with him when he ran in the simulator he was on the pace very quickly you know up to esteban's level in the simulator and we were just hoping that the pace that he showed in the simulator would uh translate onto the track and it did uh he was very quick on on track too so we've got some good potential there in Lance and we'll work with him to uh, hopefully teach him some things that we know about uh, how to drive the tire and how to preserve it and how to make it go quick and last over the stints and we'll, we'll do that with him, um, help him qualify better too. Uh, but he, he brings some uh, great skills. He's quick. He usually does a great job at the start and over the first lap he usually makes up places and so we look forward to working with him. Okay. And I mean, you've already said that you think Ocon is, is a champion of the future. So are you one of these guys who goes, which side of the fence are you on? Are you, do you say, oh, Formula One's broken, the fact that a guy like Ocon hasn't got a drive in 2019? Or do you just go, Formula One's always been like this? Yeah, I don't think it's broken. It, it's always been like this. You know, there are different circumstances for different drivers. And, you know, Michael Schumacher, one of the best ever uh, got his break because Bertrand Gasho went to prison. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it wasn't by uh, design. It was, uh, it was uh, by luck or misfortune for Bertrand. And that is, that is Formula One. Um, Esteban's young enough. Esteban had opportunities this, uh, this year, but they weren't uh, forthcoming, I think, due to his management structure. It's just how Formula One is. Mm. Uh, however, I think... Um, in time, as time goes to infinity, those guys with the uh, uh, with the talent uh, will come to the forefront. They'll their talent will rise. When when you say his management structure, you mean the fact that he, he's nailed on as a Mercedes man. I that's so. what played against him in his negotiations with Renault and other teams. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe after after the Renault thing, he had some opportunities that uh, maybe didn't uh, come to fruition because of it. Okay. Well, look, Omar, it's been a fantastic catch up. Um, what happens now? Do you get much downtime over the Christmas break? Usually a little bit, but uh, because there's so much change happening here, I think the downtime is uh, is going to be minimized. You know, we've got to do some extraordinary things that we otherwise wouldn't have been doing. Um, you know, things I talked about before, looking at infrastructure changes and spending some money on things that we should have spent money on uh, a while ago but haven't. And so that will take some human resource and focus so we'll minimize the downtime and well, go on. You're do not what we be, have to do you're going to get time off aren't you yeah for sure we'll go to cornwall with the family for christmas and then which bit of cornwall do you go to that's sort of well, for those abroad that's southwest england southwest england uh i usually don't go and i don't know something called constantine bay or i've never been are you going are you going to go this but year? but i'm going yeah i'm going it should be fun we'll be there five six days and I look forward to it. Uh, just being with the family is nice, and 
Are you going to whack a golf ball when you're there or not? Finley is, yeah, for so sure. So Finley is your son. Finley's and, my 15-year-old um, son who golfs. He does golf, doesn't he? Just tell everybody quickly how good he is. Well, I mean, he's he's working hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> now you're being a and modest he needs dad. to work a little bit harder. You're being a modest dad. He's 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 the, he's. He hits it straighter than me. I can tell you that. He hits it straight, and um, and yeah, he, he, the, the beauty of golf is there's always something to work on, whether it's putting or coming out of a trap or chipping or, you know, your long yeah. game, your uh, irons, or yeah. So there's always something to work on. So we're taking the clubs. Hopefully, the weather will cooperate. Do you do you ever get back to the states? Yeah, uh, end of January, thirty first of January, I'll be flying to Michigan to go snowmobiling and it's the 20 year anniversary of of me taking Europeans to northern Michigan to go snowmobiling so we should have a big bunch so this is a regular trip so you Once go a year. whereabouts do you go to do this snowmobiling it's a place called Paradise Michigan and it's in the upper peninsula of Michigan and it's a, it's in the snow belt where they get snow lake effect snow so the fact that there are lakes not far from it means they get more snow than uh, other parts of the state the great lakes and and yeah. you just go and get lost in the middle of nowhere on on snowmobiles yeah it's it's brilliant they have thousands of miles of trails up there and uh, we spend two three days snowmobiling and it's it's great fun well i have a great time best of luck for 2019 what's that what are the hopes let's end it with this what are your hopes for 2019 2019 i i think we'll be very competitive again in the midfield um we saw haas much more competitive this year uh renault too finished fourth in the championship toro rosso i believe will be sharing a lot with red bull next year including the engine honda will be getting better so the midfield fight is going to be intense and we hope that we can be in that fight and uh, be successful and being the top of the midfield. So that would be fourth. Okay, well, let's aim for that. And knowing Honda like you do, do you think they're going to get their ducks, get, ducks yeah, in a row? And they, they will. will be? Yeah, they will. Do you think Red Bull will win races next year with Honda? I think they've got a good chance. Okay, well, let's hope you guys go very well. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Robert. Thanks, Tom. What a fascinating life Otmar has led. He's certainly the only F1 team principal who grew up living behind the Iron Curtain and who can speak Romanian. And he's one of the few to have real-life experience on the shop floor outside of motorsport from his time at the Ford Motor Company. It will be fascinating to see how Force India gets on now that it has an injection of funds. The team and its many fans around the world can rest assured that it has an experienced and inspirational guy steering the ship as it heads into a new chapter of its existence. Thanks for your time, Otmar. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for this week, but we'll be back in just seven sleeps with our Christmas special. I hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Beyond the Grid. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And please keep getting in touch because we love your feedback. Last week's episode with Juan Pablo Montoya was enjoyed by many of you. If anyone else would like to drop us a line and potentially get a shout out from yours truly, use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. We'll be back with one final fling before Christmas next week. Until then, keep it flat out. <laughs>